Welcome. You are listening to the Cover to Cover podcast, lively conversations with cutting edge authors, hosted by Mary Elizabeth Jackson. Mary is an author, advocate, and educator. Join us to find your new favorite author, book, or inspiration. We've got you covered. And now, here's Mary. Welcome everyone to the show. So I am just so excited to be here today with my good friend and soul brother, the extraordinary Stuart Pierce. Well, if you if we have not met before, I am Mary Elizabeth Jackson, author, advocate, and educator. Now, I have a very special person with me. He's so many different things, just so many different people. And um, I'm going to go ahead and introduce him because we want to just jump right in. Um, I warm welcome to you, Stuart Pierce. You are already on camera with me and I'm so, so grateful to have you here. And I'm so grateful for our friendship. And I wish that we would have met a really long time ago. (laughs) So welcome. And then I'm going to talk all about you here in just a second, but hello and beautiful day, right? Namaste, namaste, namaste. It's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great honor. Oh, it's a great honor to have you here. Well, you have had, for those people out there listening, watching, if you have not met Stuart Pierce, we're going to dive right in and tell you about, he's just had a super, super gifted and incredible life journey. At least that's how I see it. And I know you probably feel the same way. There've been bumps. There's been, it's been very interesting as well, hasn't it, Stuart? My, you mean my life? <laughs> yeah, you're, you've, you've had this incredible life journey. I mean, not everyone gets to say that, and I'm getting ready to talk about this, you know, the, the part that you have played in your life and in the lives of others. Um, I know today we're going to, um, we're going to, we will, I want to discuss your book that we uh, are going to be talking about, which is Diana, the voice of change. And the important, one of the important reasons for talking about it, it is the 25th anniversary, correct? It was on August the 31st this year, 2022, yes. Yes. Um, There was a commemorative edition of Diana, the voice of change, yes. Yeah, and it's such a gorgeous cover. Oh, my gosh. It's it's just a beautiful cover. And um, actually, I had two copies, and I've loaned them out to friends of mine who wanted to read them. So I got to get them back or get another copy because, I, you know, I end up sharing my books with friends, which is great. Um. So before we go any further, um, I want to share with folks that you're a legendary master of voice, which if you just listen, just close your eyes, you can just listen to him talk all day. I know I could. He's a what is called a voice alchemist and an angelic emissary. Stuart Pierce was the head of voice at the Weber Douglas Academy in London from 1980 to 1997. He helped pioneer Shakespeare's Globe Theater for Mark violence between 97 and 2010. And he's coached the luminaries and greats like Eddie Redmayne, Matthew Good, Hugh Bonneville, Emily Clark, the Margaret Thatcher, Mo Moulin, Benazir, is it Bhutto? Did I say that correctly? Benazir Bhutto. Okay. The the prime minister of Pakistan. Okay. And then of course, Princess Diana, which is just an amazing, amazing thing. And Anita Roddick. 
Stewart has also been an angelic emissary for 35 years and has published, he has several publications out there that you need to check out. So he has Angels and the Keys to Paradise, The Angels of Atlantis, Book and Oracle, The Angelic Heart, Sigils, is it Sigils Oracle? Is that right? Sigils, yes. Sigils, uh, okay. Angel Heart Sigils Oracle, yeah. Okay. The Heart's Note and the Alchemy of Voice, alongside several award-winning sonic meditation readings. Um, your current publication, Diana, The Voice of Change, is one of the, what we're featuring today. It's revelations about Diana's life, principles, and the essence that ignited her radiance. And you know what? She really did glow. I mean, when you saw her, she looked like an angel walking, didn't she? Yeah, she was she was pretty extraordinary. And um, when I met her, of course, she was going through a very big transition of uh, just revealing to the world through the Martin Bashir BBC Panorama interview in 1995 what her relationship with Prince Charles was really all about, uh, which has now become this iconically uh, this iconic reference in the history of the British royal family. Um, and what she was seeing is that she wasn't ignited, what she personally felt. So she felt, in work, watching the rushes, that she was of diminished stature, that, you know, that she was doing a lot of this with her head. And she was using this very, very, very light, breathy voice. And she, did, she felt that it belied the power and the gravitas of her persona, of what she wished to fulfill herself in the world. So guess what, you know, through somebody that she knew very intimately, I was brought in and defined for her how she could ignite her radiance. And so that's what we really worked on for the last two years of her life. Not that we knew it was the, the last two years, but she, she was taken from us, obviously in August, 1997, which was really, really, really difficult. Oh, something's just happened. <laughs> I put you up there in the in the limelight, baby. <laughs> we can focus on you and what you're talking about. Your voice is so um, well. It's it, it just you know one of my I want to talk about one of my favorite statements that I've heard you say is that um, when you and you can I, I'm quoting you so you can fix it if you need to, but when you speak from your heart and it moves up to your vocal space, then you're speaking with authenticity. Am I correct on that? Oh, it's a quote from Rumi. If words arise from the heart, they enter the heart. If words arise from the tongue alone, they don't pass beyond the ears. And so, you know, we can feel a great difference. I mean, this is very much to do with a cerebral delivery, but as soon as we drop into our bodies, as soon as we drop into our hearts, our voices take on our soul reflectiveness, they, they take on emotional resonance, which was much more in connection with the very deep instinctual atavistic, meaning original purpose aspect of who we are as human beings, having, you know, spiritual beings rather, having a human experience. So this is effectively what I do. I, I tune people into their note, that we each have a note, a signature sound that is at the very core of our physical geometry the physical our physical bodies uh, the difficulty is that our educational process our socialization process the way we've been conditioned in society is that we've been brought right up here into the ivory tower of our heads and so wherever we go in the world we're hearing i mean you know what i'm saying hearing more and more and more and more and this is in the united states but i mean the same thing is happening i'm i happen to be in london at the moment 
um, the same thing is happening here. Everybody's talking like that in their noses, you know? So it's all taking on this very harsh, metallic, cerebral sort of quality. No matter what they're saying, it just has this head-centered energy. They just become talking heads. <laughs> it's so amazing to hear you go into all those different sounds and tones because it's so true, but we're so desensitized to it. We don't even realize it's going on with folks, do we? Mm-hmm. We don't know. Well, we're so conditioned and surrounded by noise that we we literally don't realize that the noise that we're that the sound that we're producing in the harmonic energy of our own purpose is noise rather than harmonic sound. Whereas if we go back in our history as peoples on this planet, particularly going back say 450 years ago to the end of the last Elizabethan period. Obviously, we're just finishing now the second Elizabethan period with the demise of Elizabeth II. God bless her soul. What an extraordinary human being. But at the end of the 1500s, the beginning of the 1600s, Elizabeth I died in 1603. There was this huge exploration and, if you like, fountaining of the English language through the mouthpiece of Shakespeare, through the playhouse, the Shakespearean playhouse, through the pulpit and through the debating chamber. They were the three great orifices that established what culture was all about. And the majority of people then, of course, couldn't read. It was only an eighth of the population that could read, the educated classes. So if we don't read that we hear sound in a completely different way. But the point that I'm making is that this was before the machines. This was before noise. So there were natural sounds, including sounds like the the wooden cartwheel turning on the earth as the cart moved along, or the, the you know the town cry with his bell, or the bell in the in the belfry, which of course was their time mechanism because they didn't have watches. They organized their day through the ringing of the bell and also through the sundial. All of these natural resources, the, the neighing of the horses, you know, the human sounds that we all commit ourselves to, the burpings, the fartings, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these natural sounds. So there was a Lord Mayor of London in 1597 who wrote, all speech is decorated silence. Mm-hmm. Well, where do, where do we hear decorated silence today? All we hear is a field of noise because we live in our metropolitan communities. Obviously, it's very different when we move into the, uh, into the um, suburban or into the rural setting. If we go into the heart of the countryside, if we get on a boat and go right out into the into the ocean, we hear silence. If we switch the motor boat, the motor of the boat off, we hear silence. If we go into the country and we switch off the generator, we hear silence. And then our voices change and we move deep into our bodies and we start sharing on a very deep level the consequence of our lives, the meaning of our lives we share on a heart level Hmm. it's very powerful very very powerful and it's almost like um when we move into those spaces at the beach or in the country the interference the the white noise it's silenced so that that whole different vibration can be heard and felt that resonance can exist it can't exist and all of the noise that we have and the, and the interference. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing um, 
to come into awareness and then be more mindful of it when you're speaking to people. I know speakers, if you're going to be a really good speaker, they get trained that way. But for the rest of us, um, nobody really knows about it. They don't know about this and they don't know the significance of it when you, I mean, if you, if you think about how we react to people, you could have two children in the same house and the way one child says something, a parent reacts a certain way to that child. And the way the next child may say something, a parent may react totally different. And it's because of the deliverance from the child to the parent. One may totally get on your nerves. You want to scream and yell at this child. And the other one, you're like, okay, honey. And it's, it's very interesting to have those different dynamics going on, isn't it? Yes, I mean, the key that we all are in search of, I believe, because we're, we're hardwired or indeed softwired for connection. And so the key that we're looking for is harmony. And obviously, when we're not in vibrational match, we feel a level of disharmony in our beings, as you were saying about our children who maybe are misbehaving or they're determining their own conviction of their own power in a certain way that is abrasive. And we try to, through our own power, we try to suppress what their process is all about by hitting them on top with sound rather than just becoming still, working through a carefrontation rather than through a confrontation and simply saying, what is really going on here? But I mean, this is very difficult. We have to be very mindful. We have to be very present. And the difficulty that I feel about myself when I'm responding to conflict or challenge, even though I'm a conflict resolver around the world, um, in, in individual people's lives and also in broader contexts. You know, two months ago, I was in Ukraine running a workshop with um, UN um, p- people that were working for the UN and art, the artists, some of the artists of Ukraine. And so allowing them to feel how sound can create harmony in a war-torn environment, which, of course, we know is not just on the outside of their bodies, or our bodies, because obviously their lives have been blown apart by the shells and the ammunition that has been um, projected to them by the Russian forces. But the way that they're also feeling desecrated within because of the harm to their sovereign status, etc., etc. And even in those situations, you know, sound is a transformative. Sound is at the very core of creation. So what I did was to bring them back into an understanding through chant, through certain inspirational teachings, through my own voice of how they could feel a state of harmony. And whereas at the beginning of the workshop, we were all in disunity, by the end of the workshop, we were all in harmony and literally falling into each other's arms and weeping and hugging. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Um, very, very, very extraordinary. Wow. So how does that make you feel to be a part of that in this world? How does that make you feel? Um, well, I feel as though I'm doing my job. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I literally feel as though I'm fulfilling the conviction of what I interpret my soul to be, of what my purpose is. Um, I don't mean that we have one direction for that thing called purpose, but literally I believe that our purpose is that we optimize our creativity full of love and joy. And there have been uh, uh, um, areas of my life where I haven't been fully seen or I haven't been given permission 
within certain social contexts to do with work to allow myself to be fully seen, that I've kept part of myself, particularly my mysticism, hidden. Um, because you don't, you know, you don't go into co the corporate world saying, "By the way, I see angels." You know, right. That's something that is just simply not understood. So I've compromised a lot of my being. And uh, about twelve years ago, there was a huge watershed in my life where most people are starting to think about retiring because I'm a certain age that is called retirement age, I decided that I would go in a completely different direction, unfold my wings and see what the flow of the universe was all about as I commit myself to the totality of the conviction of my creative energy, as a messenger of the divine, as an emissary of the angels, as a peacemaker and as a great lover at heart and at soul. I believe our hearts are the, the seat of our souls. And so it was just extraordinary to be in that situation where there we were ostensibly in an arena of unbelievable conflict and cruelty and subversion and coercion and manipulation uh, perpetrated, of course, by much of the action from the Russians into Ukraine. And then, of course, the stealing of the conviction of the force within the Ukrainian peoples to say we won't, we won't, uh, we won't accept this. So they fought back. But to feel the the angst of what that situation was, and I see sounds. So I was seeing it literally as a gestalt, as a pattern in the in the environment that we were placed, and to be able to bring about change where we move from disunity into harmony where we move from disassociation into all oneness, where we move from fractured anger, frustration, irritation, or rage into all oneness, into unity, into grace, into equity, into deep, deep, deep human sharing. That is a trophy beyond all comparison. Mm. That, yeah. That's absolutely extraordinary and it's not you know doing something like that this is a very sort of extreme illustration it's not something that i spend my whole life doing this was an opportunity that came um i think i've worked for the un on two prior occasions one in palestine in on the gaza strip which i have to say that's about 12 years ago maybe um that's hell on earth i don't mean to project the negative energy on that situation but the right. conflict that has been going on for so many hundreds of years is so intense that you know people's lives are regularly being blown apart that was mm. really intense i remember uh, after the work i went back to the hotel in jerusalem and wept for about three hours you know mm. to weep out the angst of the situation because i also have the ability to see spirits so i was actually seeing many of the dear ones who have passed, but they don't even know where the light is, you know, that they're still caught in the trauma of fourth dimensional energy. So my job being there was to create sound that would illuminate the conviction of how they could make their transcendence, because sound is a transcendental energy, you know, that if we can see that sound and light open up transcendental corridors of light into the higher dimensions, then we can actually begin to really understand what the whole purpose of our voices, of what sound and the making of sound is all about. But sound is a dimension of the meaning 
the intellect, of course, is just redolent with the whole function of whatever the idea is, whatever the opinion is, whatever the belief is, which is normally expressed in a very competitive way, because that's how we've been taught from an academic point of view. And then we begin to realize that everybody's point of view is, is interesting. There is no right or wrong. There are just lots and lots of opinions. And when we move beyond opinion into sharing on heart level through the unification of sound, we begin to realize that we're really aligning with the celestial ones, with the unseen beings of light with the great angels, with the great cosmic guardians, with the ascended masters and mistresses. Now that I find extraordinary. Mm. So wherever I am, I try to bring that in. I mean, I, yeah. in this moment, I'm reminded of a story just to illustrate more fully what the conviction of sound is all about. And the story is a very ancient story that goes way back into the sands of time um, and possibly was tabulated by Hafiz and Hafiz was a great poet, metaphysical poet that came before Rumi. And the story goes that the Divine One made a statue of clay in his or her own image and asked the soul to enter the statue of clay. Uh, but the soul was so liberated in the conviction of its own essence and ubiquitous. Why would it want to live in this small statue of clay? So not to be foiled, the divine asked the angels to sing a seraphic chorus. And the soul was so enchanted by the seraphic chorus that the soul agreed to enter the statue of play. And so began Adam Kadman, and so began human beings. So you see, we have within us the core of the universal sound and the angel's song. Hmm. That's really beautiful description. Yeah, so that does give you much more in-depth understanding of um, the importance of this, of, of us and where we come from um, and our core. Um, it, it helps you, it allows you to pivot the way you look at things and to expand your awareness of what we know so that you can include this into your understanding. Um, now, I do want to ask you, um, uh, the, you, you've played some, you know, your relationship with Diana was very significant in her life as well as yours. And I know that I will, we'll just touch on this briefly because I know it's a very sensitive subject for you about the queen's passing, you know, for those of us who are not there, um, we're only watching it on television. Um, you know, can you share with us for just a brief period about your relationship? You know, I love your story from your childhood with her and um, and what she meant to you. And then, like, what is your present role now with uh, the new king? Because um, did you see that? Did you see yourself being a part of the royal family again in this capacity? No, not at all. Okay. And obviously there's part of that in terms of its future witness that uh, in this moment in time I can't really speak about because of confidentiality. Okay. But um, I can certainly answer that the first part about Elizabeth's passing. Yes. Which, of course, you know, we she was 96, so we were all aware of the fact <laughs> that soon she would be leaving us. 
But what we hadn't anticipated was the extraordinary visceral reaction or response that many people have um, experienced. In fact, on Monday, the um, 19th of September, which of course was the state funeral of Elizabeth. And it was beautiful. I watched it. It was it, so moving, wasn't it? You know, where do we see tradition, ritual, heritage, ceremonial performed in the way that it was performed by the, 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 the great military complex, but in such a modus of duty and unity and service. It was just really, really touching. It's it ignites something in all of us. It, it touches all of us, Stuart, because we only see that in movies. We don't get to see that in real life. So I guess that's, you know, one of the things I was wondering, what was it like for you there? For I know how much it touched those of us watching. So I can imagine it was that much more intensified with you being there, you know? It's been, I feel that this is a rare moment in the cosmology of our peoples. That sounds rather grandiose, but if we look into the astrological aspect of Elizabeth's death two weeks ago today, in effect, um, and then the, the 12 days of mourning, and then eventually the funeral on the 19th on Monday, something was out of joint in the atmosphere, in the sensibility of this island. London is the earth star chakra of the world. And so, although we have a diminished responsibility or um, a relationship with the, with the world, we are now all a global village. At once, it gives rise to the un an understanding from a cosmological or from an archetypal or from a metaphysical perspective of how this small cold gray island became the British Empire all around the world. I mean, it was just absolutely extraordinary. And of course, we know a lot of the commanding nature of that empire was about the suppression of indigenous people. And something I believe is now being done about this through um, through very extraordinary reparations, you know, just as, for example, the German peoples after the Second World War, the German, the German government, I should say, uh, created reparation with the vast community of Jewish people for the horrors of what took place in the Holocaust. Much has been done, particularly in the drawing together the elements of the Commonwealth, I think there are 18 or 19 nations within the Commonwealth, which was first um, decided upon by George VI, meaning Elizabeth II's father. And all of the, all of the um, politicians within each of the nations was approached and said, well, would you like to become a republic or would you like to join a Commonwealth in, in relation to the United Kingdom? of the world. And they all agreed. So, you know, there wasn't a statement of, but we feel like the subjugated masses. And so we're not going to agree to join the oppressive patriarchal regime of the late Victorian order. They all very willingly came forth. And this seems to be misunderstood by many of the political commentators. Hmm. 
what happened, of course, in 52 was that the king died and then the young Elizabeth took over. And so she became the matriarch of this United Kingdom, the realms and the Commonwealth, and was known around the world. I mean, the extraordinary thing was that if you mentioned the name the Queen anywhere in the world, everybody knew exactly who you were talking about, even though there are several queens, you know, the Queen Noor of Jordan, the Queen of Denmark, the Queen of Norway, etc., etc., etc. But it was always Queen Elizabeth II, this remarkable woman. So that's what I mean by this rare cosmological event, that something has splintered in the consciousness of the English peoples. And we're in deep, deep, deep mourning. And I feel this mm. mourning was felt around the world. So, yes. I mean, I personally, I had the extraordinary honour of going to Westminster Hall where the lying in state took place on Friday of last week at nine o'clock in the morning. The last time I was in that building was in 1965 as a 12 year old child with my parents go, walking through, filing through as it's called here, um, the lying in state of Winston Churchill, the great war hero. And so I'm aware of the building, I'm aware of its august nature, I'm aware of the frisson of energy that's there. But as I walked into the hall on Friday morning, the whole space, that building has been there for 900 years. Wow. And the whole space was full of angels and cosmic guardians. And I stood literally in a vortex next to her coffin and watched many of the people. I was very fortunate. I was actually given a pass to make entry. But many of the people had actually queued for a five-mile queue or line, and they'd literally been queuing for 13 or 14 hours before they arrived. Oh, my word. The level of the level of devotion, the level of diligence, the level of dedication, the level of loving unity. As these people walked in, although they may have been exhausted by the weight, they were all buoyed up by the camaraderie of the occasion. And it was one of the most moving experiences that I've ever, ever, ever had. I mean, must I mean to wait a five mile line and all those hours? I mean, it, it was an I was in awe at the procession uh, well, on Monday and the 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 line, the people on both sides, and it, what it brought back memories to me was watching Diana's the car with her and all the people, and and like you said, it just I I don't know we we don't have. We don't have this kind of um, thing happen in our world very often. Thank goodness we don't want to lose great people, right? But to have the 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 way that it's done, the the gallantry of it, the the way it's presented is just it, it, how could you not be caught up in it? How could you not be moved by it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A form of ritualized theater, so very that we, so. so that we feel all of the varying components deep within our bodies. It's not just something that we regard, it's something that literally penetrates into our bodies. And so our cells shift. You know, there were moments when I was watching on Monday where there would be triggers and the whole of my body would be moved into weeping mm. by, 
by the ceremonial and the ritual. For example, when her coffin was placed onto the gun carriage, you know, which is something like 172 years old and is, and is only used for the bodies of sovereigns. And then it's drawn not by horses, but by armed forces. And when the, the coffin was placed on, of course, the, the, the men and the women from the Royal Navy who were drawing the gun carriage, they had to separate to allow the six pallbearers to carry the coffin and place it onto the pall. And then there was a signal from the sergeant major and they all went zoom into action. And it was wow. just this synchronized dedication of movement with the, the impact of heart service. There are no words, are there? Just extraordinary. Yeah. Mm. That brings tears to my eyes, too. Um, there's something about it that's, I, I don't know, there just really aren't the appropriate words to describe what it looks like, what you're witnessing, um, and what it what it means to each of us to to watch you know um it's it's so symbolic isn't it oh it's immensely symbolic it reaches right into the archetypal bedrock of our consciousness deep into our psyche because you know so many people have been interviewed by the news um you know the news reportage people and um have said well it, what it reminded me more of was of my own mother you know the, the, yes the matriarch reminds us of the divine mother so as diana's gift so to speak i mean it's slightly ironic or bizarre to say that her death was a gift but we all know that the sacrifice of her life opened up the consciousness of um at that time i think it was because the population of the planet was somewhere in the region of 5.9 billion people. Of course, now we know we're 8 billion. 25 years ago, it was 5. Point. So I believe that it was 3.8 billion people observed Diana's process. And we all saw this wave of Shakti move through our beings. The Shakti is the um, the archetypal force within the Divine Mother that lies deep within the bedrock of our consciousness and, of course, within, mm -hmm. our, within our universe, within our cosmos, within our planet. Uh, I feel something very similar is happening with Elizabeth's passing. When you think of the extraordinarily studied dignity of her physical composure all the way through her life, often removed and aloof but always dignified, always gracious, always smiling. And um, as a younger person, I experienced the might of her generosity and her love. Yes, can you tell us that? Um, well, it was, I mean, there were so many, many fond moments through childhood where I was aware of her, her laughing at my antics. The, the Queen had a wonderful sense of humour. Um, but my father worked for, both my mother and father worked for um, the, the royal family, and that's how they met. And when they married, which I think must have been 51, 52, they, my mother ceased working for the royal family, and my, but my father continued on as a, a leading um, royal servant and was there for many, many years until his untimely death at the age of, 56, 
working Prince for well, Prince Philip, working for the Queen's husband. Um, but they'd been together for about 30 years. They were very, very close, both, both, both men. And my father died suddenly of a heart attack when the, um, Prince Philip was shooting in Scotland. Shooting I'm sorry. Um, and the way that the Queen stepped in with her immense compassion and empathy and wrote, and it, both she and, and Prince Philip wrote these extraordinary letters, which of course I've still got, to my mother describing what had happened and how their lives were shaken by the loss of a great friend. Oh, wow. You know, Dad was a remarkable man. man. I mean, he had a tremendous amount of... He was a real bon viveur, you know. He had a, had a lot of a lot of humor and was a great storyteller. Give him a gin and tonic, he'd tell you yarns of stories. <laughs> he was he was you know he was an immensely um, a, a man of great responsibility. Uh, he carried very easily the weight of his role and was used by many members of the royal family as a sort of foil to. He was always known as Jumbo, not that he was fat, but he had an elephantine memory. So members of the royal family would call him and say, what did I give the queen for birthday present last year? And he would already know. He would always know. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so he was loved by many people. Um, he was a very difficult man to have as a father, but he was, you know, I'm in full respect of the extraordinary service that he conveyed. Sure. Um, so I was brought up in all of that. So I had a very close perception of what was going on you know there is the pomp and the circumstance and then there is the the human being right. so I remember as a child once um being in the Buckingham Palace with my father I mean I must have been about nine or ten or something and I loved the stationery in Buckingham Palace because it was of a certain thickness that oh. it would actually transform itself into really great paper airplanes and of course you, you're dealing with these huge galleries these huge halls where nobody would be and there were no drafts. So I would stand at the top of the grand staircase and fly my paper aeroplane because it would go on and on and on and on and on. And wasn't that the great desire as ch as a children making as a child making a paper aeroplane? You just wanted it to go on and on and on and on. Yes. It's like yeah. flying a kite. You just hope it's going to get higher and higher and higher. And I always remember doing this one day and I heard this voice saying, what are you doing? And I turned around and it was Her Majesty smiling. <laughs> And, and of course, I, you know, did what I, I was terrified, and I did what I had been told to do. I remained silent and bowed, mm -hmm. and said, "Isn't it Stuart?" And I said, "Yes, Your Majesty." And I said, always say Your Majesty, and after that, it's Ma'am. And uh, and she said, "What? No, 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 no. I'm I'm not I'm not angry with you. Come come into my room." So I went into her sitting room. And I was there for about an hour and a half, and we we had a chat. I sat on the floor cross-legged. She took her shoes off, and her, her legs were up on the sofa. She ordered tea. I had hot orange juice. I'd never quite worked that one out. Why would hot orange juice be? But apparently in the 50s, that's what you gave a child. And oh, my goodness. Yuck. Amazing conversation. I mean, she was. I think we watched TV. I seem to remember this black and white TV set going on. We watched TV. And um, and we and we laughed, you know. She was such great company. Just the two of us were about. Yes. And then she picked up this huge. Do you remember the Bakelite um, telephones? These huge. Yes. And she picked it up and dialed. It was white. I remember with a golden cord. I was thinking, oh, what an amazing telephone and dialed. Right. Joe, and I could just hear my father's. Your Majesty, um, <laughs> Joe, surprise, surprise! Stuart is having tea with me. 
<laughs> just imagine my father freaking out you know what what, what, what uh don't worry just you know when you're ready come down he's here he's safe oh what a um, beautiful memory so that's that's a big private memory there are many 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 meetings with her majesty both in very formal situations and also in informal family situations and also philip and they were they were extraordinary to my mother and father. And particularly when my father died, they were extraordinary to my mother. I mean, really, they look after their servants so well. That's just so... Thank you for sharing that intimate part of your life with us. That's really, really beautiful. Um, what great memories for you to hold into your heart for your life and to be able to reflect back on. So I know this has been an extremely emotional time for you as well. You know, I, I do want to highlight your book that does focus on Princess Diana because what a way to celebrate who she was in this world and to share with others your, you know, your relationship with her. I know you've told me a couple of stories and it just, I love it. I just love knowing that about her because I, I just think she was an extraordinary woman. And um, I think, you know, she represented hope. And I think that I think, there are those of us who, you know, sometimes you see somebody who's larger than life and you, you see, is there anything that, that you're like, like them? Are they like you? Is there something, there's a connection there. There's that we can see that they're more than just a figure, you know, in this world. And I think for so many women, Diana represented just a vast majority of women and, and allowing her vulnerability to show, you know, because most women, like we know, like Queen Elizabeth, her vulnerability was never allowed to be seen in public ever. And truly not in private, because if she did, it is the difference between a man and a woman being in charge. If a woman shows that vulnerability, she loses face, she loses her power, you know, and that's an illusion we know, but it's the way things are set up. So yes, um, and Elizabeth was the product of a certain Era. social education and era which we can see very finely created recreated in yes. the series the crown the first, oh, you know, the first part i love, that. Now, love that, that, from, that from a vibrational point of view for me was so accurate how do you recapture a bygone period you know because our lives today are so completely different our values the, yes. you know, the, the way we live our lives the the the, the soft furnishings in our in our lives, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really accurate um, because I remember it, you know, I remember it so well. My father oh, found the late King dead, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh my um, gosh, that must have been devastating for him. To point the, well, um, it was part of the job, you know, it was, it, on one level, it was a huge honor as well. Um, right. The, the reflection that you're making is actually a really interesting one because the role of the monarch was removed and remote um the, the elizabeth always carried this extraordinary dignity always smiling always gracious we never saw her shadow we never saw her shadow was it with with diana she was the people's princess and so we saw the whole of the chiaroscura the whole kaleidoscope of diana's emotional life and she wore her her feelings on her sleeve so we saw her joy we saw her bitter tears we saw her glory 
we also saw her desperation. And, you know, it's really, really interesting because my experiences in um, mostly in UK, US, US, UK, but whenever I'm asked to speak, I did a, a large presentation um, uh, just before the Queen died, in fact, the day before the Queen died. <laughs> and I always remember people saying, do you feel in the Q&A at the end of the presentation, do you feel that the Queen will be with us very long? And I said, you know, I feel that the Queen is dying. I feel that she's going to, and the next day she was dead. So oh, wow. Dramatic. But it's very interesting to note that... Um, I, I thought that maybe having had this personal relationship with Diana for two years and those two crucial years where she had she was divorced from Charles and then of course she you know she moved into her death sequence that people would want to know what it was like but actually it's the reverse I tend to listen to what their stories are that they never met her but they felt that they had been accomplices of her that that I find for very extraordinary and it's mostly ladies who speak but they feel that they actually had a personal relationship with diana i find that extraordinary yeah but it's your you're a hundred percent on there because i'm one of those people who felt that way and i think it, it was because of her vulnerability she she allowed us an open door into who she was that allowed us to be feel connected to her and what she represented for all women and um she was an extraordinary person and she was an empath that we know and empaths tend to feel easily connected to other empaths. You know, we, we don't even have to really know each other, but there's that soul connection that it's like, we've known each other forever. Right. So that's where I think maybe that comes into play with that. Um, so the, your book, um, about Diana is, um, I want you to tell everybody where, first of all, where they can find you and where they can find the book. And I will put links in for the two videos that you sent me so that people can go and subscribe to your channel. They can, um, watch the very heartfelt videos that you did. I just love them. I've already shared them out with others, uh, friends of mine and family. And also you have a show on YouTube called, uh, it's, it's, dialogues after dark and so you do you really dive deep into that I thank you i love that dialogues after dark it's actually called deep dialogues oh but that's I right love, sorry I, I love the dialogues after dark i think that's i think that's thank you can i borrow that yes we'll do hashtag dialogues after dark where did that come from i have no idea because i know what your show is called because i've been on your show so uh, that's so funny. Maybe that's what you're supposed to add or change it or, you know, make it addition, maybe a I special think, series. I think, you know, well, our Deep Dialogues is now, when did I begin them? In May 2020. So yes. we've had 2020, 2021, 2022. So it's been going for the last two and a bit years. I feel that I need to rechristen it for the beginning of next year. And it's going to be Dialogues After Dark. There we go. Whoop, whoop, whoop. There we go. Because, well, of course, in the UK, they're, they're always in the evening because of me right. wanting to time frame with different areas of the world, particularly with the US, because I, you know, I'm based UK, US, US, UK, and I have dear friends in the US. And in fact, the majority of my clients, I think, are US people. Um, not that I'm ignoring any of the people in the Antipodes or South Africa or no. Europe <laughs> or the Middle East. Please keep coming, keep coming. Come to the angels' work, to the angels' temple. Yes. Uh, but yes, thank you. Thank you for that. That's a fantastic title. I know. 
<laughs> I love it. Well, that was that came from the angelic realm. We're gonna say that. So that was channeled for you. So, um, but you know, tell everyone where they can find you and find your book. Well, the easiest thing is stuartpierce.com, S-T-E-W-A-R-T-P-E-A-R-C-E, uh, stuartpierce.com, which the book can be seen very clearly on the store page. Um, I think that's probably the easiest thing. Or go to Amazon. It's on Amazon. Um, uh, and it's the commemorative edition. Um, my publisher is Filament Publishing, but that that can be found through the website. That's the easiest thing to do. But of course, you know, please, you know, see all of the videos and work that I um, freely, freely gift through my YouTube channel and come come to Facebook and Instagram, Stuart Pierce. Generally speaking, it's Stuart Pierce, the voice, because I'm known as this voice coach around the world. Yes, you are. And the book is called Diana, the voice of change. And um, I just love it. And um, all I can say is thank you for joining us today. Wow, what an honor. Thank you for sharing these stories with us and, um, you know, dive into your life and your journey. Um, we all have a story and yours is very unique and very blessed. And um, you have to keep us posted on I don't know, some of the wonderful things that keep that, that are going to continue to happen and your show that's kind of going to be coming up. But everybody go check out um, Deep Dialogues. I had to remember what the name is right now. <laughs> it was Stuart Pierce on YouTube. Go buy his book. Support his um what he's trying to do with carrying on the life of Diana, even though she's not here with us, but what she represented for all of us. And we are all in prayer still for the queen and her family and all of those of you who are involved with her, their family. So it is a blessing and we will, um, we'll be back soon. So we hope everyone, we want to send blessings and light to everyone. And thank you, Stuart, so much for being here today. It's been a true honor. Bless you. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be with you and, and to all the viewers. Um, namaste, namaste, namaste. Thank you for being a part of our audience today. Please subscribe, like, and share the podcast with your friends and tune in for the next episode of Cover to Cover for all things in the author world.